0: For a time, he was the biggest star in the wrestling world, the greatest technician in the ring. Yet he couldn't outrun the shadow of Frank Gotch. Today, we talk about Joe Stetcher. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Hey, it's you, it's us, we're here, we're talking. Oh my god, I am so excited. What the heck am I talking about? Who am I? My name is... Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, a visionary? No, because that's stupid. Sometimes a ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a professional wrestling history nerd. I am a historian. I love this, and I am here with the one small sexy girl in Mothra to my other small sexy girl in Mothra. Sometimes we talk in tandem, but either way, it's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man?
1: Oh, I'm quite capital, man. This is, this is gonna be another fantastic voyage in the Nerdificator 9000, the the uh, the Nerd Nerd History Express or whatever we came up with last time. I gotta write that back down. But man, no, I'm having a great time. The show's going awesome. Thank you guys for listening. It's been killer. Shout out to Australia, you crazy sons of bitches. Uh, Yeah.
0: That's that's something actually I love. I I I've been very interested when I look at the statistics, the the numbers, the um, you know, the, the the internet facts about who's listening to our show. And yeah, we're actually getting a pretty decent following in Australia. England makes sense. We have talked about English wrestling, there's a proud history of wrestling there. But Australia, I don't know what's happening down there outside of kangaroos and what I saw in The Road Warrior. But thanks for checking out the show. I, I hope you like it. I hope you keep listening to it, and we'll get to some Australia. Australian tales as soon as we can. But what we're doing now, we are continuing this this kind of long series, this big picture team up, this, uh, you know, Marvel-esque phase one type of thing where we are going over the weird dark ages of wrestling in the aftermath of Gotch versus Hackenschmidt. Everybody kind of feels like after that it peaked and nothing really came back for almost a decade, but so many interesting things happened in that time. You had men like we discussed, like Zabisco and Aberg and Lorich, who they're the proud tradition of Greco-Roman was falling apart in the face of, you know, catch-style wrestling becoming more popular because it's more exciting, more fun to, uh, to watch, and so their entire legacies were just crumbling because they came along 15 years too late, and then you have the hot up-and-comers like we're going to be talking about today who came up, big stars, amazing athletes, spectacular wrestlers and champions, but they still lived in the shadow of Frank Gotch in America. The the other guys kind of lived in the shadow of George Hackenschmidt because they were European, but here in the States, it was all about Gotch. Who could measure up to Gotch? Who could possibly beat Gotch if he comes out of retirement? So many men who were stars, who could have been the biggest stars possible, couldn't really outrace that shadow until it was too late.
1: Yeah, and you see that a lot in sport and in professional wrestling where, you know, not everybody can replace Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold Steve Austin and be that next guy or, you know, Michael Jordan. You're always looking for that when you when you truly witness greatness, like the run of of a, a generational great, a goat, if you will, um there's that absence is so glaring when that run is over that you're looking for that next guy to come along and be that that new dominant feature that that new you know the new biggest draw the new hogan the new the new stone cold and it's a hard it's a hard bill to fill man
0: because we could talk about men like that, men like Frank Gotch, who were the measuring stick of what success, what victory, what talent, what everything is. But once they're out of the picture, once that that matchup, the kind of the sporting reality is gone, myth turns that measuring stick into like a, a mile-long thing that no actual person can live up to. And you would have stars. You would have men like what we're going to talk about today, like Joe Stetcher, who is one of the most important wrestlers in the 20th century, but very few people have heard his name or know who he is or what he meant to wrestling. And that's what I want to do is explore these weird little nooks and crannies and amazing people and wrestlers that don't necessarily get the credit that they do in the overreaching you know, mythos that is pro wrestling.
1: Yeah, and and just like in any other aspect of life and the crazy but true stories of, you know, entertainers and performers, this is sort of like a dark era in between well-documented and more researched er eras. But that's where the craziest shit is found. Like, this is the undug treasure of pro wrestling history that we're getting into right now. And we're forming, like... The individual backstory of all the assembled, you know, the assembling Avengers right now. And it's a... Dude, this is going to be so awesome.
0: Because people like to think of history, not just wrestling history, but history in general, as this very, like, black and white type of thing where things stop where it's like, oh, well, after, uh, you know, a- after, uh, you know, Hitler was killed and the Soviets hit Berlin, World War II was over, There, you know, even though there was a second command and, you know, things kind of stretch out in every direction, you know, Rome collapsed slowly over centuries, it wasn't like a quick, boom, Rome is done, everybody has to go figure shit out, everything works in gray areas, slow rises, slow falls, and lots of complication in the middle, a lot of nuance, a lot of weird. stories and facts that you kind of have to go looking for because in a survey of wrestling history this kind of does turn into just a little dead spot that's overlooked until the gold dust trio and Ed Strangler Lewis has the belt and they are controlling wrestling but a lot of cool things happened before that you know we've talked about the 1915 Greco-Roman tournament in New York with the rise of the the masked marvel and uh, we've talked about like how Greco-Roman kind of fell apart and how Catch was becoming more popular and that leads to stories like we're going to tell today and one little disclaimer I want to put up front is I do the best I can if I'm ever wrong about something if I am ever uh, You know kind of put a little flavor on something that I've completely misinterpreted That's what happens when you are researching this type of thing, because we have to go off of old newspaper articles. We have to go off of sports pages from, you know, 1913. I have to go off of biographies that sometimes rely on an oral tradition where it's like, oh, here's this version of the story. Where did that come from? Oh, Ed Strangler-Lewis told that to Luthes. Luthes wrote it in his autobiography. So you get a lot of conjecture. You get a lot of the myth-making that, uh, you know, makes the person telling the story uh, look a little better. It's kind of like with Gotch and Hackenschmidt where Gotch died young. So Hackenschmidt got to kind of cook the story a little bit to make himself look a little bit better because he outlived everybody and could have his version be the version in interviews. So I do the best I can. If you hear a story a different way, hey, you know, hit me up on Twitter. Let's have a talk about our source material and figure out what the real story is because I love this. I hope you guys love this and we're going to try to bring as much history to life as we can.
1: Yes and I'm cheating off his homework. So if you have a problem with the research that he has done for your entertainment, fuck you nerd. Chongo digresses.
0: So you know it's like we've said many a times if you if you use you know uh, iTunes, if you're still dealing with Apple, the only real place you could do rates and reviews for podcasts, you have to give us a five star review. And if you don't, you have to fight one of us, and you don't know which one of us will show up. We flip a coin, and uh, you know that's just that's not a thing you want. So let's keep it interactive on the uh, information, storytelling, social media way, not us having to go uh, you know slap anybody around. So now that I've gotten the violent threat to our audience out of the way, let's get to the story of Joe Stetcher. Joseph Stetcher was born on April 4th, 1893, on his family's farm in Dodge, Nebraska. So we have a, a Midwestern boy like so many before him. The youngest of eight children born to immigrants from Bohemia, which is now the western part of the Czech Republic. It was its own kingdom for a while, absorbed by the Habsburgs. It, it's like most European countries where... The, the Who's in charge? Who conquers it? it it's so complicated, it could be an episode of history of some kind all by itself. But they are Czech immigrants trying to do good on a farm with a whole lot of goddamn kids. And it seems like most of the kids were athletic prodigies. Though, like we've discussed many times before, nothing builds discipline, strength, and determination like growing up on a farm, especially in these days
1: yeah and nothing builds a badass like being the youngest sibling we see that consistently play out in sport too whether you talk about like michael jordan or walter payton examples of all-time greats who got that level of skill and work ethic and drive by by having to compete up with their older siblings and i got to imagine being the youngest of eight kids on a farm like that's already the recipe for being a tough son of a bitch.
0: Oh yeah, no. If you're if you're the youngest on a on a farm and a you know like a farm family at that time, it was most likely oh hey us older kids are gonna go uh, you know look at some boobs that somebody drew on a barn somewhere. I don't know what kids did for fun at that time. So hey, youngest kid, we're gonna need you to uh, you know milk the chickens and get the uh, cow eggs. I don't know how animals work, so forgive me on that one. You're gonna get stuck with a lot of work that the older kids didn't want to do, but you have no choice because they told you, you they would beat you up if you didn't do it.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the blueprint for, for the foundation of someone that's going to grow up to kick a lot of ass, is getting your ass kicked a lot at the beginning.
0: And as we've seen with wrestlers going back to like Evan Strangler Lewis, all the way up to MMA fighters like Matt Hughes, working on a farm gives you a tenacity and strength and determination and stamina that you really can't teach outside of kind of those uh, parameters because there's no giving up halfway through like uh, like you would your workout because hey those hay bales have to be moved or things are going to go very very wrong you have to carry things for 8 hours and hope that you know mom brings you a sandwich and lemonade you'll have to work sometimes you know, dusk to dawn or dawn to dusk to get you know the harvest done to bring it into town for market, and nothing builds tendon grip strength like using tools and uh, you know like you know lifting bays of hail. It is CrossFit in its original farm form, and that gets you ready for wrestling like nobody's business.
1: Yeah, the country strong or, or uh, you know corn fed. You know, uh, good old boys out in there in Nebraska. That's that's how it is, man. Because you there's a direct correlation to how hard you physically work and how much food you get and how much you know how much wood you have to burn when it's cold at night. It's a it's a direct correlation to the comfort and the quality of your life based on working your ass off. So you learn a really really. Different level of work ethic growing up on a farm.
0: Yeah, because you can't just say you know it's like if you're working out and you go you know I'm kind of tired I'm gonna I'm gonna skip these last few sets. You don't get to do that on a farm because then you know the the, the horse will freeze to death because you didn't chase it across the field. The crops will not get harvested on time, and nothing builds grip strength for wrestling, jiu jitsu, MMA like this type of work. You know you could lift weights. All day long, every day for seven weeks, and you're not going to have as strong a grip as a somebody who you know lifts bales or, exactly. or digs holes or you know like you know puts puts refrigerators in place. Just that tendon grip strength can only really be built through hard physical blue collar labor.
1: Yeah, and you could you could probably create like a fully incorporated Mr. Miyagi. Grappling routine with different farm chores because just about everything you do on the farm Translates to wrestling.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, it's like dodgeball where if you can dodge a wrench You can dodge a ball. Well if you can suplex a hay bale you can suplex a, a townie
1: Yeah, I mean if you can if you can put some horseshoes on a horse You can probably ankle lock a motherfucker.
0: Oh, absolutely. And all these kids, the entire family, seemed to excel in sports, you know, running, uh, you know, uh, swimming, you know, track and field stuff, uh, and also in baseball, which makes sense because their parents birthed an entire goddamn team's worth of children. His father, Frank, enrolled Joe and his older brothers, Louis and Tony, in wrestling classes at the Fremont YMCA, where they took to it like ducks to water. And his brothers were also amazing. Lewis would go on to Annapolis and become a lieutenant commander in the Navy and was the national intercollegiate light heavyweight champion. Tony was the top wrestler at Fremont High School. So Joe had some mighty big shoes to fill and fill them he did. In 1909, as a 16-year-old senior, he took on and nearly beat Dr. Benjamin Roller in an exhibition while Roller was touring the Midwest. Roller is a top-notch Greco-Roman guy. He's a guy who helped train Hackenschmidt. He is a like was like the gatekeeper to gotch for several years. So even if he was doing works a lot of the time, he is still one of the most skilled catch-as-catch-can wrestlers. And he nearly lost to a 16-year-old kid who had no amateur or pro experience outside of school. So that's a, that's a hell of a spot to be put in uh, psychologically, uh, let alone, um, I, I guess I, I guess media-wise, uh, reputation-wise. Fortunately, it was Nebraska at this point, so it's not like a, you could go on Twitter. But yeah, he, he barely pulled out a draw against 16-year-old Joe Stetcher.
1: Yeah, well, you, you know, obviously the talent, the, the proof's in the pudding, man. He's got the goods. And, you know, it goes back to the point earlier. He's been competing up, having to bring the level that a little brother's going to have to bring to his older siblings to try to keep up with them on on any competitive level, especially something physical like wrestling. So I'm sure Doc Roller is just, you know, he's used to working light, he's used to working programs and, and selling, and now he's got this farm strong, youngest brother, you know, mama mentality maniac coming at him, and he's probably completely unprepared for the level of shit kicking that this kid's willing to do in this match.
0: I always picture Roller, like the look on his face, Uh, kind of showing my age. It's like when Frank Shamrock fought Jeremy Horn for Shamrock's title at the UFC. And Shamrock was dominated by Jeremy Horn on the ground the entire goddamn time. And with like one minute left, Shamrock pulled out a fucking knee bar, got the tap, and he gets up and his eyes are just wide. He realizes he got through by the skid of his teeth. He actually wiped his brow like, whoo, I... I didn't I didn't think I was getting out of that one a winner. So yeah, it's it's this this guy is like just like the king of that like almost carney style of of challenge wrestling at the time, and he barely escaped with a draw against a sixteen year old. So you he knew this kid was going to uh, really be going places. And sure enough, uh, both Joe and Tony Stetcher went pro in nineteen twelve with Joe defeating. Bill Kokief in his pro debut. And as a pro, Joe, who was taller, heavier, with a better reach, was better suited to the life and style of an elite pro wrestler than his brother, but don't feel bad for Tony, who took to the business side of things very quickly, becoming Joe's trainer and co-manager along with Joe Hetmanek. And, you know, because Stetcher, he he was heavy for his time. He was, like, I think around 2.05 but he was tall, he had, those, he had really long limbs, almost, almost like he was built for a, a basketball court, and he was able to use that, that reach advantage very, very well in the grappling world, which you know, sometimes that can be the strength unless you, you know, don't quite have the strategies, in which case that can be kind of a weakness, but when you have a guy who's like a fucking octopus, just you know, his legs and his arms can completely wrap around you, and there's no way to really escape them, and that guy knows what he's doing, that's a very effective advantage that nature has given you.
1: Especially in the rule sets of both catch and Greco, because in both of those are the, the, the vast majority of techniques, and in Greco's case, all the techniques are not predicated on level change and you know shooting a double and getting real low or an ankle pick. It's about leverage and upper body locks and control on in terms of greco and then on the ground when it comes to submissions man l- length increases leverage it increases your range of just submission sort of green zone where you are they are in the range your triangle gap is bigger and you can really throw some nasty submissions if you're longer than the, than your opponent so he really has one of the ideal body types for for the current rule set at the time
0: and yeah, you think about a guy with those, you know, a big reach advantage in grappling. It's like you get into a bit of a tie-up, uh, even if it's not really like a collar and elbow type thing. You try to keep your hips back, but he can still reach your knee. He can still, you know, grab, you know, grab a leg, even though you're, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to keep out of re- normal reach where most people couldn't quite get you. Or if you shoot and he sprawls, I mean, his hips are can be so far back by the time you uh, you, you you could possibly, uh, you know, hit the ground. That there's really nothing you can do especially when he is 205 or more putting his hips on you at that kind of body length there's not a lot you're going to be able to do against that body with that type of skill
1: yeah um the finals of the 2010 world games i i took the silver and i lost on points to uh this guy patrick welsh and he was six foot seven with about a six foot ten reach and that that was it, man. He beat me by about five points. And what it came down to was every time I had the the ability to potentially finish the submission. Like one time I had him in side control, I was going for the far side arm lock, and his length allowed him to extend it so far that I compromised my weight distribution and he was able to bring his leg over my back and regard. Like just something no one else could do if he didn't have a you know that much Different length, and it just creates a unique set of problems when you're talking about submission grappling.
0: Yeah, it's like you watch, uh, you know, once again, I'm, I'm an old man, so you have to kind of bear with me on my references. Like, watch the Noguera brothers, uh, you know, from, from their pride days and yes. their, their heyday, where, you know, it was going up against heavyweights, but because he was kind of a little bit of a taller, lankier heavyweight, if you get tangled up in his guard, there's not a lot of places to go because it's like his guard never ends. It's always there. His legs are too long. And if you want to see how length, of of limbs can work against you, then you look up semi-shield.
1: Yeah, there's... there's, There are plenty of advantages and disadvantages to being long. You know, I called years ago that the first guy that was ever going to get a chance to beat John Jones was whoever threw him in an armbar because that body type's weakness is, you have elongated fulcrums and levers. And so the thing that you're gonna be susceptible to, versus like a guy who's built like a fire hydrant, that guy's gonna be susceptible to like head and arm chokes and upward rotational shoulder locks. But when you have really long limbs, hyperextending them, it's long pencils, man. So there's always a give and take. But if you play the game smart, he has one of the best body types for this, for, for catch wrestling.
0: So yeah, th- this can work against you, but so long as you know your weaknesses either way, you can come up with a great strategy. And I will just say this, the uh, the Stetcher uh, team had that great strategy. And the other thing he had was a great finisher, a great uh, way he let, he finished almost all of his matches Uh, and it it, it looked so weird to me because Joe Stetcher became famous for his leg scissor finish and it didn't make a lot of sense to me as a shoot move when I first saw it in still photos. It's a leg scissor squeeze from back mount or sometimes from the side with your ankles crossed and squeezing the abdomen between your knees. He did have freakishly strong legs and reportedly trained it by squeezing 100 pound sacks of grain and there are claims of him using it on pigs and a mule no word on whether or not they exploded like a stomped ketchup packet but the tails persisted and yeah he, he had famously strong legs he would get people into that scissor hold and it wasn't always a submission and this is where it made a lot more sense he was able to you know control them with his mutant level strength legs he was able to cross his ankles to lock them in and he, a lot of times he would just use that to turn them over for a pin it wasn't like the, he was like squeezing people so hard in the guts that they They gave up. It was something he could always control people. He was able to land it most times, get people caught at it, wear them down, and then flip them over onto the back. But The thing that made a lot more sense when I I saw some other information is he would have them in that leg scissor. So he's squeezing the abdomen. Somebody has strong legs. You're winded. That's going to make breathing a little bit harder. And then what he would do is he would control an arm and then sneak the other arm under it to the back of the head and turn it into a half Nelson pushing the chin down. So he's squeezing the abdomen to take the wind away, and then he's compressing it by using it as a half Nelson, and I don't care how strong you are, that's going to take everything away from you. You're not going to be able to breathe. Your diaphragm is folded like like origami, and whether – so you gas out real fast, so either you're going to tap to the Nelson crank or you're going to just go with the the roll because you can't fight back. To get pinned, and that's why nearly every victory he has was with this one move.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've, the the different aspects of it are absolutely have full merit. Uh, Josh Barnett, when he submitted Dean Lister, when submi- Dean Lister hadn't been submitted in over a decade, it was with a similar type. Uh, pressure it was a different position because he had side control but at the, the additional pressure from the hook on the back of the head and the compression that was that's a classic catch pressure catch wrestling specific pressure of like a neck crank into folding over the trachea and as far as the body scissors itself for one I cornered a fight for worlds of series, World Series of Fighting where Phoenix Jones no joke won the fight with a head scissor got a legitimate submission with the head scissors. scissor. So yeah,
0: and Stetcher has su- had many of those too. He would either yeah. catch the abdomen or he would catch it around the neck because if yeah, your legs are neck. strong enough and you get that in the right position, totally. there's no scientific leverage difference between a leg scissor choke and a rear naked choke. It just seems a weirder thing to pull off.
1: Yeah, and the, the, the torso aspect of it because there's a... Um, I believe one of the Von Erich brothers famously used that as their pinning maneuver as well. And maybe this is where that came from because it is a great way. If you're long enough, you can get a whizzer, get on the side of the guy, put your hand on the ground and kick up and get that scissor sweep and land right into a body lock there. And if you rotate for a legitimate, as far as the submission goes, it's not really ideal, but to create a pin... That is a viable technique if you have the right body type, which, which Stetcher definitely does, man. This is tailor-made for his advantages.
0: And through using this time and time again, catching everybody with it from the, the lowliest goofball to the you know, highest of champions, that's how he got the nickname The Scissor King, which may or may not also sound like the producer of lesbian porn, but I digress.
1: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's exactly where my head went with it. But I wonder, what was his? Did he like to get like chest down with it, or was he ever in risk of getting rolled up with his own shoulders back? He
0: he was very good at keeping like a almost like a back ride, but a little bit to a side. Yeah. And then he would control that Nelson or just the arm. So once he kind of squeezed the air out of him, he was able to use the uh, the the arm as leverage <sighs> for like a half Nelson or just an under the shoulder grip to roll the person over. So, shoulders down, there you go. And he was dominating everybody, but he was just dominating in the area, in the Nebraska area. And he didn't take to the national stage until he caught the eye of Martin Farmer Burns, a name we hear a lot of even in this era. Because Burns was doing one of his famous contours where they do a worked match to sucker the gamblers of the town and then offer cash to any local wrestler who could defeat their big heel, which at the time was Yusuf Hussein, yet another terrible Turk in a long line of terrible Turks. But unoriginal marketing aside, the Ottoman wrestlers that came to the West were as good as anyone on earth at the time and could beat damn near anyone competitively, let alone the local farm boys in their tiny town. Uh, The Ottoman, like the Turkish wrestling, was very similar to Greco Roman, but you were usually oiled up. These were always going to be like these big, giant, strong men. You know, you you listen to the Evan Lewis story about uh, the first terrible Turk to come to the States. These are are big, intimidating, scary-looking men, and this is who they were offering an open challenge to. And they would say, hey, which of you local farm boys would take a poke at this monster? And this time, there wasn't just an average farm boy stepping up. It was the local hero, Joe Stetcher, who stepped up to this challenge despite very few people knowing who he was or giving him much of a chance Stetcher out wrestled Hussein and when he caught the Ottoman wrestler with his leg scissors Hussein was disqualified for biting Stetcher's leg around the 45 minute mark Ooh. I feel he took that uh, t- took that as the the way out rather than get pinned by the uh, by by the local
1: Yeah that tells me he was uh, he he got him he was about to lose, and he needed a heelish way out. Well done as far as a heel, heel finish on the fly there. But, oh, how sweet it is. Uh, you know, you got to imagine Farmer Burns is, you know, you either die the stick or live long enough to see yourself get worked by somebody planting in the crowd because that was Farmer's game. So, of course, this is the perfect way for Stetcher to catch his eye because he basically... Pull the Farmer Burns on Farmer Burns.
0: I actually didn't think about it that way, but that is a hundred percent correct. He was the the the, the Dan McLeod, the uh, the Farmer Burns, the the guy who came out going, "Oh hey, I I'll I'll take on your your champion and just absolutely wreck their shit." But Farmer Burns always knew how to turn a dollar off of things, so he knew that this was the uh, the guy to to get behind, and. Stetcher's career took off. He made his name in the sport and in very short amount of time he went on to dominate names like Jess Westergaard, Ad Santel, Marin Plastina, Adolf Ernst, and others in straight falls, usually less than 15 minutes combined. And the one that deserves a little more attention is the lead up to his match with Westergaard, which was made to build Stetcher up as a title contender against Charlie Cutter, who was the American champion at the time. And the match was initially going to happen in Omaha, but there were plenty of complaints by gamblers who lost money betting against Stetcher in his matches against Hussein and Santel. Nobody thought this kid had a chance. He was young, he was green, he was- he, he didn't look like a, uh, like a like a fighter. So they claimed that these matches were being a Hippodrome! They complained to the police like awful fucking snitches, and the chief of police stepped in and issued an order banning the advertising of the Sketcher versus Westergaard match. The Omaha Daily Bee published a statement from superintendent of police A.C. Kugel, and I quote, During the last few weeks, I've received various complaints from Those who declared that wrestling matches held here recently were fake and asked me why I stood such an affair. I told the chief to stop fake matches or exhibitions of any character. As to this particular match, I have no information. I would not be able to distinguish a fake match if I saw it. And in the Racine Journal News, the police chief claimed, I believe that the way to make wrestling clean is for the police throughout the country to make a determined effort to drive out the fakers. Do you think that happened? Or are we living in the clean days of competitive wrestling again?
1: Oh yeah, that plan clearly worked. Yes, we definitely want to put the police in charge of more programs. Yes, that's a great idea. No, uh, Chargo digresses. Ain't hey, that some shit? And here, here he won. He's actually like the hometown boy, done good. He's got a chance to have a fight in Nebraska with like a getting getting a push, and they think it's a, a
0: work. And and it most likely was, to be honest, because the odds of a worked match were very high because both men were under the watchful eye and tutelage of Farmer Burns, so this was most likely a worked match to build up Stetcher. But... The city was on to them, and knowing that legal action against the police would take too long and Westergaard book, booked out East soon after, the promoter moved the match to Lincoln, Nebraska, and the match ended up being kind of meh and most likely a work, with Stetcher winning two straight falls in a combined 20 minutes.
1: Well, I mean, he still got somewhat of the hometown babyface spot, and two falls in 20 minutes, um, yeah, I don't know if... It, it's hard to follow up when you get to these big hypes. We're seeing that consistently over the the scan through these different historical matchups where we get to the big crescendo and it, it somewhat falls flat. And oftentimes, it's because they backfired and they tried to, you know, do it straight and then the people thought it was a work. And, it, you know, that sucks because... This is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't get past Gotch and Hackenschmidt, man. And, and
0: exactly because this is in that post Gotch Hackenschmidt time where everybody was still, you know, throwing accusations of it being a worked match, even though, you know, as we've d- discussed many times, if you're going to work a match, you make it entertaining. Those were just train wrecks. Shit happens, but. You know, Chicago didn't want to have wrestling for a long time because they they, they felt swindled. So many towns were starting to ban or investigate wrestling because of the the match fixing which was affecting gamblers who would then complain and, uh, you know, turn into a legal issue. This is kind of what led to athletic commissions even being formed was crap like this, both in wrestling, boxing, and various other sports. But this match, worked or not, catapulted him into a title match. And on July 5th, 1915 in Omaha, Stetcher got his shot against Charles Cutler, the reigning American heavyweight champion. And I love that this, the referee for the evening was Chicago Sporting News editor and Frank Gotch superfan Ed Smith. This is the same referee that uh, Gotch and Hackett Schmidt got where he just turned a blind eye to to Gotch, you know, fouling Hackett Schmidt at every turn. He wrote a book that pretty much You know, like praised, uh, praised, gotch like, like you wouldn't believe. So it's very funny to see a very biased sporting, uh, you know, editor put in there as a referee, after being proven that he really can't be uh, be objective about things. But hey, that's showbiz, baby. And I loved this. The Stetcher fans from his hometown of Dodge, Nebraska pooled thirty five hundred dollars to make a new championship belt to present to Stetcher if he won, but they said they wouldn't give it to Cutler if he retained his title.
1: That's first of all, that's amazing. That 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 level of home like when you think about like the emotional content of when a fan goes out of their way to make something, whether that's a sign or a t-shirt. For their favorite wrestler, right? These guys made a belt. They like. They like. It was like a town effort. That's tremendous.
0: And just think about what thirty five hundred dollars in nineteen fifteen is worth. I mean, that was probably you could have bought three houses and a mule for that kind of money. So I mean, a lot of people really believed in this guy. He was the hometown hero, beyond any sort of. Like you, I like guess limits is the word I'm looking for. He was the hometown guy, the hometown hero, beyond Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia. These guys had a hero on their hands, and they put together a fortune to have a custom belt made in case he won, which I'm sure they thoroughly expected to to see happen.
1: And I think this might be one of the first examples of a proto super over hometown babyface.
0: I also can't can't emphasize enough how much i love that they're like oh we're gonna give it to him if he wins well we're gonna give it to cutler if he wins fuck that guy
1: yeah no that's the best part yeah it's like nope uh, we're gonna all get our money back
0: we'll, we'll all take turns wearing it yeah uh, totally yeah at the town hall at the dance the the you know, the, the fair or whatever the market but the match was ready to go the chicago examiner described the match in their july 6th edition Cutler was very aggressive for the first five minutes or so, going after Stetcher hard, who was much smaller than Cutler. With non-stop attacks that Stetcher avoided, Cutler managed to throw, but Stetcher popped back up to his feet immediately, not having landed on his shoulders. Cutler was visibly winded, and Stetcher went on the attack about the five-minute mark catching him with the leg scissors three times before he was able to roll him over at the 14-minute mark for a pin so classic thing just let the guy burn himself out and then caught him with a move that is tailor-made to suck the wind out of him but it still took three times before he could finally roll him over for a pin
1: well he was the champ you know and that's that's fantastic strategy and classic like rope dope context of like let the aggressor tire himself out early then then put the attack on you see that everything from ali to the diaz brothers fight that way where once they're fatigued and you have that advantage in the gas tank that's when you put your foot on the gas
0: and Cutler, having been pinned, was just lying on the canvas, seemingly unconscious for almost three minutes after the pin, while Stetcher strolled to his corner, not even breathing hard. It took another five minutes for the champ's seconds, his his corner men, to come help him to his feet and back to the corner. I did read another article where he claimed to have shaken uh, Stetcher's hand between rounds and said something about how you've got championship material or something. I feel that's myth-making to kind of, you know, make it feel like more of a passing of the torch in, uh, in, in, a, in the media sense. And the second fall was a much shorter version of the first, with Cutler coming out strong and accomplishing nothing against Stetcher, who then caught him with the scissor hold. Cutler held off against the move for two minutes before gassing out, getting turned over, and getting pinned
1: man it's it's a beautiful utilization of funneling your opponent into your your kill shot and you know he's he's got this like anaconda strategy of wearing his opponent out and then going after the body and and constricting the airflow uh it's very very interesting because it's totally not how you approach it in the modern the modern era Choking someone is about using arterial compression and stopping the blood flow to the brain primarily. In fact, if you are doing a what we would call an air choke, that's usually considered in optimal technique. And he's got a whole different strategy and philosophy that he's that he's implementing and it's really brilliant.
0: And it and also it was new. It was yeah. it kind of came up with a new move, a new strategy, a new way of doing things, so people weren't used to it. You know, you're not defending against the, the same old, same old. Totally, and it does. You know, like people don't understand how much something like that can take your wind away, particularly when you're doing the neck oppression, like. I remember the first time I got choked to the point where I thought I was going to go unconscious when I was uh, a fairly young kid. My stepbrother, who knew some wrestling, put me in a cradle and just Mm. pulled, 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 pulled. And I was like, I I can't breathe. I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. I probably would have blacked out if he hadn't have let go. So a lot of people don't understand that, yes, you can squeeze somebody in half and it takes away the ability to breathe just as well as a choke would.
1: Yeah, and especially when you factor in that... If you apply a choke on a championship grappler, they've defended a choke a thousand times. But like you said, this is a new technique. This is a different way of approaching the game. And... It's one of those things that, like, maybe you heard that he did this, and maybe you had somebody try to do it to you in practice to prepare for it, but you've really never seen or defended anything like this.
0: Yeah, it's it's like uh, you know the first guys in jiu-jitsu who uh, you know found themselves in like a rubber guard or a butterfly guard, totally. or however things evolve and mutate and adapt, and you know if you get trapped in something new. You might as well be a white belt or a uh, or or a rookie because. You don't know how to defend this because you have never dealt with it. You'll do better going forward, hopefully, but not always. But this one was all over. The match is at an end, and the sports writer described the combatants thus. This is from the Omaha Bee. Cutler weighed 230 pounds and looked hog fat. His wind was bad. Stetcher, who was taller and lanky, weighed only 205 pounds and appeared but a stripling besides his burly opponent hog fat what an awful thing to uh, to say very similar to what they said about Evan Lewis during his match against uh, you know farmer burns but you know that's that that tends to be the the way things go especially in these days where you know if you're a champion you're a touring wrestler you're successful you're not as hungry but you're also traveling non-stop it's not like they had a Whole Foods you could get a uh, you know a vegan protein meal or something like that you're eating shitty roadside diners you're not training as hard it's a lot easier to get fat in 1950 15 on the road than it may be today for an athlete.
1: Yeah, and also I'm sure this this reporter had no idea what, you know, fitness looks like in terms of functional strength because I mean, I'm sure he would give a similar analysis to Daniel Cormier if he saw him today, you know? Oh
0: yeah, it's like if you see, like I watched a, uh, I was watching some pride matches today and the match... Fedor. Were, yeah, Fedor versus Mark Coleman. If you look <laughs> at them based yeah. on aesthetic and muscles, you're gonna be like, oh, Mark Coleman's the fucking guy. Fedor looks like somebody's stepdad who just woke up from a hangover and came out to get the paper. He does not look like a champion fighter, but he has all the functional muscles you could possibly need to do anything you could possibly want, so yeah, you can never really tell based on the aesthetic build of a man how strong, how dangerous, etc., etc., he actually is.
1: Yeah, and it's just another example of, of Stetcher's really getting the LeBron treatment here because even in this crowning moment they're still kind of burying him. Like, no, that wasn't that great of a champ. He wasn't the best. It's like every single step, the press is really kind of preventing him from having a fair shake at maybe being the guy to get us past gotch, you know? But because he sounds phenomenal based on what he has done already at this point. He might be one of the best uh, you know, um young prospect like like budding stars that we've ever covered on the show and I it's sad that the press is just really even his hometown press is burying him, that's very lowercase.
0: Well they were talking about uh, about Cutler with uh you know the muscle tone and that Yeah, yeah but true, they, but but, but so many yeah, though yeah, exactly, yeah. They kinda took away the the, the full you know, weight of the victory. like yeah. the the old the former champ showed up looking like shit. But either way, Stetcher was now the acknowledged American heavyweight champion. There was a lot of people who referred to him just as the world heavyweight champion, like it was Gotch's title. But at the age of 22, he was 22 years old. He was wow. the youngest champion in history at that point, and he had not even been wrestling you know, these catch rules as a pro for even three years at this point. It's like a, a BJ Penn BJ type Penn, of thing yeah. where he was just a prodigy. He, he was built for this. N- no holes in his, uh, his training, his game, his mental, his, his physical everything. So at 22, he is the champion. He is, you know, like running everybody over. He is not even three years into his pro career. And at this point, we have to talk about somebody who was on hand to watch that match a man named Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch, even though he had pretty much retired yet again, had no real interest in, in wrestling, he would still pop in as a special guest, a referee sometimes, you know, do things like that. But he was on hand to watch this man who very much was being compared to him as his potential successor in the business. And right then, right there, uh, the this Chicago promoter, Joe Coffey, he offered to put up $25,000 for a Gotch versus Stetcher match. And while he made no official comment, it seemed like the money and the challenge were enough to lure the catch wrestling legend out of his retirement. Soon enough, a Philadelphia Evening Public Ledger, April 1st, 1916, commented on the match announcement and publicly pushed the imminent unless. The fact that Stecher recently tossed Doc Roller twice in 10 minutes persuades Gotch to stick to the farm. So even now, the, the press is starting to say, this guy could probably beat, beat Gotch. But there was no real escaping the shadow of Gotch at that time. That was the only match that mattered. That's the only match that people wanted to see. Gotch was the measuring stick for everybody who wanted to be the successor, to be the man. Like when we talked about the 1915 tournament, you know, Aberg and and Lurch and Zabisco. everybody was calling out Gotch because that was the guy you had to beat to be the man. But Gotch at this point was so fucking rich and he'd run over people his whole fucking career that he just was kind of bored and rich and not super interested in coming back because he didn't have to
1: yeah well it's it's hard when you are better than everyone else, and you've cleared out your division, and you have no more challenges, right? Once you've beaten the video game over and over and over again, it gets a little boring. So I could totally see him, he looks like the Spice Adams meme peeping around the tree, like, oh, we finally
0: got a little contender, and my, my draw, with With old Gotch, eh? Yeah, and that's the thing I really... Maybe I'm painting my own uh, psychology over uh, Gotch here, but I feel like he was probably interested for a couple of reasons. One is he actually saw somebody who was a challenge. You know, Gotch was rocketing towards 40 at this point, but he really had not had a severe challenge in a very long time so he was saw somebody who could give him a go you know actually make it a uh, you know make it a competitive match because when you're a competitive you know wrestler grappler boxer whatever it doesn't matter how you know deep into your uh, your years you get if you see a hot up and comer like part of your brain goes I could fucking take this guy, you know. You kind of get that that old lion seeing the new lion uh, taking over the pride thinking Like, oh man, I got man. If I get, oh man, this is this is this is the one. This is the guy who's gonna you know fucking draw me back out. Plus, it was the first time there was a hot enough challenger in catch wrestling in the region that he could look at and say, oh, we could make a lot of money. I yeah, and a lot of money.
1: And uh, you know, on top of just being a true you know connoisseur of the game, he wants to see what's hot. This is the new hot shit. He wanted to check it out. But then I also think when you're talking about that level of dominance, like, is this finally the one that can give me a real challenge? Like, I have not been challenged, which is almost the saddest and hardest thing when somebody is that in, inarguably greater than everyone else. They they lose their, like an Anderson Silva thing, where you start losing that need... You, you're, you're not being pushed. There's nothing around you. You're in that much in front of the race of everyone else. You look around, there's no one there. And he finally got somebody that might give him a challenge. So, I think it's got his.
0: And the Anderson Silva thing made me realize something. Gotch is one of the very few long-time champions, a guy who held a belt for many years, who didn't have that like champion self-destruct button. He never had that, like, I'm just gonna be weird and goof off in the middle of the match because I'm just so fucking bored because I'm just, I'm so much better than everybody. I don't, I I don't even know why I'm here. Kind of having the weird meltdown on, you know, en route to a decision victory. Gotch never lost his focus. He was, you know, legitimately like, I will steamroll whoever I need to, to fucking win and make money. He also still had that carny you know, business sense where he would still do the, oh, we're going to do a weird challenge thing where, oh, I couldn't throw this guy twice in an hour. Let's have a real match. And then he kills him like he did with Lurich. So he never lost the his edge. He just yeah. kind of got a little bored and decided it was just easier to stay home and uh, you know not uh, not travel as a as a wrestling champion or or go uh, you know up to the Klondike under a fake name. If you haven't listened to our Carnival episode, now is the time to go back and check that crazy story out. But yeah, he but yeah, at this point, Gotch was he was like the retired gunslinger with everybody wanting to make their name by calling him out, and he just wasn't super interested until now because according to the Keokuk Daily Gate City, what a long name. Oh, and, and Constitutional Democrat. That's the full name of the paper. What a name. It's May 22nd, 1916, talking about the representatives of both wrestlers were still fighting about money with a 60-40 split in Gotch's favor being turned down. Uh, Gotch was clearly feeling the itch to compete, the itch to make money, because he went on tour with Jess Willard for a circus tour. In other publications, Gotch's manager Emil Klank said that the match was going to happen as soon as the finances were agreed upon. Stesher knew his worth. He knew this was going to be a fortune. He was looking for that 50-50 split. And even as champion, everybody was just talking about the potential gotch match, him coming out of retirement. Because like in the Sandusky Star Journal, July 5th, 1916, they covered Stetcher's match with Ed Strangler Lewis that went to a five-hour draw. <laughs> and the 18,000 people in attendance booing and throwing their chair cushions. This match was so badly received that the media declared that neither man should be paid until they rematch and have a conclusion. Yet the lead into all this coverage was about making a possible Gotch match and a promoter offering to put down 75k to make it happen. So you know it's this big crazy match that nearly led to a uh, a, a goddamn you know riot. Uh, you you would think that 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 would be the the lead in as opposed to hey let's talk about Gotch for a minute because Gotch was still what wrestling was. Everything was still in the shadow of Gotch, no matter how crazy it was. And what a fucking match, a five-hour draw. I would be pissed, like, I I would be furious to have watched that as well. And that's one where, you know, Stetcher and Lewis were very much the rivals, the the guys who were competing to be the man in this era. So I feel like almost every match they did was a shoot. And in shit like this, that's where a shoot match can go very wrong between two men who sometimes aren't competing to win. They're competing to not lose against this guy. And the poor fucking audience paid $2 or whatever to watch a five-hour draw.
1: Oh, that is just the worst, the worst kind of, of uh, outcome you could you could possibly imagine. And yeah, that's, the, that's a byproduct of fighting not to lose and two guys that are showing a, a ton of respect to each other because they're both very elite and very dangerous and... Yeah, that's the way to uh, fuck up your your big payday
0: booking. So this story is getting wilder than heck even I thought it was going to be. And though I do love the sound of my own voice, and hopefully you do too, this is a good place to kind of put a pin in things, uh, put things on pause to say, we're gonna finish this one up because it's now gonna be a two-parter. I wasn't expecting that, but this this guy's life is just too fascinating to uh, to take lightly. So we're gonna call it a night for now. We'll get back to things next time, and make sure you do things like follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. I like to put uh, big, crazy, uh, old-timey photos right there. Follow us on or like us on Facebook. That's what you do on that format. Keep involved. Make it uh, interactional. Tell us what you're thinking, comment on things. Let's have conversations about old-timey wrestling. How did you like this story so far?
1: Yeah, put pro wrestling history nerds in your mouth. Give it a swig and a swallow and see how it tastes. Yes, Chongo Digresses, this has been a fantastic story. It had so much meat as we peeled back the layers of the onion that that it's gonna be a two-parter, man. And that's so fantastic because it just illustrates the point that there's so much rich Unmined material here in these quote-unquote dark ages that we're bringing the light to on the Hippodrome Express, Daddy.
0: So for now, for tonight, let's just say goodbye and for two more weeks, for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard. Good night, everybody.
1: Yes, it's a teaser. Cut, print, martini.